Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where they've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else, and then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with Mm. other women and Mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hello and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. It's Cindy House. I am the host. Thanks for being here today. Before we get into our guest, Lissa Schneckenberger, a little bit of business to attend to. If you have not signed up for our monthly newsletter, I encourage you to do so at our website, basicfolk.com. That's also where you can listen to all of our past episodes or, of course, wherever you got this podcast. You can follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod. We are a listener-supported podcast If you're listening in real time, we are in our fall fundraiser and would appreciate a contribution. You can become a monthly contributor and help us reach our goal at basicfolk.com slash donate. If that is not in the cards for you right now, totally fine. So glad you're here to check out the show. Okay. Known as one of the foremost fiddlers of her generation, Lisa Schneckenberger's latest release is a huge left turn for the Vermont resident. Thunder in My Arms is unique because Lissa is not only singing her own compositions, but the subject matter is hugely personal. The album chronicles her experiences adopting her son. Through the fostering and adoption process, she came across resources, workshops, and books, but no music that specifically was about this experience. Since she processes hard things through music, she decided to step up and create this album for her family and for those in the adoption and fostering communities. Lissa thrives and lives in community through music, so creating and reaching out to this new community came as second nature. Born and raised in rural Maine, Lissa grew up around music and started on the fiddle at five years old. She competed in fiddle competitions, went to Maine Fiddle Camp and the much-revered Valley of the Moon Camp in Northern California. Arriving in Boston for school at the New England Conservatory of Music, she found herself among a familiar group of musicians that she'd grown up with at those camps. She teamed up with Laura Cortese, Hanukkah Castle, and Flynn Cohen to form the seminal Boston fiddle group Halele, which inspired so many young players and ignited a fiddle renaissance in town. Since then, she has released solo albums and has been part of groups like Low Lily. She now lives in Brattleboro, Vermont, with her son and her husband, the in-demand upright bassist Corey DeMario of Crooked Still. Lissa has a new fiddle album on the 
away in 2023. You can actually pre-order right from the lady herself on her website, or you can check our website. Enjoy Lissa. We're going to check out a song from her album, Thunder in My Arms, and then we'll get to our conversation with Lissa Schneckenberger on Basic Folk. Here's On My Own. like me. He's sitting back where he started. Simple life, simple hearted. He doesn't live like me. He is primitive. And my mother, she stopped coming around. She doesn't love like me. Always yelling. All right, Lissa, thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm so excited about our interview together. Me too. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful that um, you are excited to talk. I'm excited. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, let's get into it. I uh, I'm, have a lot of questions. Mm. Um, you grew up in a small town in Maine surrounded by music. Your parents were folk music fans, especially your mom. Can you set the scene for what that looked like and how that impacted your passion for music? It's it's so funny. I mean, we all have like everybody turns out so unique, right? Interesting, different ways of, of uh, coming to being. But so, yes, my parents are big music fans and I just went with it. I love music and I've loved it for as long as I can remember. And I had a really strong drive to pursue that. And luckily my parents were happy to support me. Like they, you know, like they tell funny, they tell silly stories about like me, you know, singing concerts in the living room with a clothespin microphone when I was three, pretending to be Miss Piggy on the Muppets. And like, that was like my, (laughs) that was my, my career start right there. (laughs) Um, And they were really great about, when I started getting the idea that I wanted to play fiddle, um, my mom, you know, rented me a, an instrument and found me lessons and then worked really hard as a, as when I was a kid to kind of honor the things that I was excited about. So we went to a lot of concerts. Mm. Um, we went to a bunch of dances. Um, my fiddle teacher as a kid was a Greg Boardman who still teaches in Maine. And he, he was really part of this unbelievable or still is this unbelievable music and dance community in Maine and just brought our whole family into that in such a welcoming way. Um, and so, you know, we, as a family, we went to dances, we went to concerts. I would sit in the back of the dance band and just play along. And then, Mm. you know, there were a bunch of just, great supportive, awesome community members. And Mm. that's still really going, um, over the years, the dance scene has continued. 
um, it's super rich and, and wonderful. And then also there's this great community around the main fiddle camp, which my, my fiddle teacher started over 20 years ago. And that is mm. continuing on even through the pandemic. They, they were just really focused on, um, supporting community. So like even during mm. the pandemic, they would do virtual, like monthly virtual weekend events with workshops and concerts and variety show and fun videos. And so that was sort of the, um, the Petri dish that I grew up in. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Okay. Lots to, um, dig into there. And before we full on dive into the fiddle, um, as you are mainly known for being a fiddler, you do sing. Um, you sing on Thunder in My Arms. And from what I understand and what you just talked about, you would sing all over the house when you were a little kid, which, you know, a lot of kids sing, but they don't all grow up to be professional musicians. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, so can can you talk about uh, your relationship to singing? Um, and then also if there's any kind of uh, friction between your fiddle playing and your singing that might exist? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've always sung. And like you said, it, it, it is a real natural part of being human, especially, you know, as kids, we're all just going around dancing and singing. And, um, my parents actually had for <laughs> when I was a kid, they had a rule that there was no singing or dancing at the dinner table because apparently it was an issue, um, with <laughs> actually having time to eat. <laughs> um, you know, I just did it as, um, something I loved. And so I was part of chorus in public school. I also started a couple of, like I started a small women's chorus in high school with a bunch of friends and and parents and was writing lots of songs. I have always written music. And, um, I just found that for, for many years growing up, that was, sort of a hobby and my more serious practice music practice was centered around the fiddle and that continued because I I went to I ended up going to the New England Conservatory in Boston and for lots of great reasons in the conservatory setting they usually have you choose a focus a primary instrument Mm -hmm. and it and the violin was just the most natural fit I was already more serious about that and just continuing to sing for fun. And, um, and that's, that was my focus through graduation. And then as, you know, as I was living in Boston, attending classes and then graduating, I became aware that there's this, um, misconception just culturally that music or even the arts in general is this magical gift that either you you can do it or you can't and people say stuff all the time like at concerts or workshops like oh i wish i was musical i wish i had the ability you know you do you know you do such a great job it's so magical to watch you you know do xyz and i had kind of taken that as a younger person i kind of took that to heart i just thought oh you either you can do this or you can't. And then through college, I was watching a lot of um, my peers um, work consistently at doing something that they weren't very good at and improving over time. Singing was a good example. I had a couple of different friends, well, some notable uh, folks like uh, like Rashad Eggleston, um, who's a, an amazing cello player, or mm-hmm. my friend and former bandmate, Flynn Cohen. I just, I remember 
watching their progress as they were working on singing specifically over time and thinking, oh my gosh, they are getting better and better. There must be something to this practice and dedication thing. (laughs) (laughs) And like, it just finally clicked. And so after graduation, I had, um, you know, I was doing music professionally full time. And in my concerts, I was starting to integrate a lot more vocal repertoire. We were doing both uh, traditional fiddle tunes and uh, folk songs and ballads in the concert repertoire. And so I just, um, I started taking voice lessons and thinking, oh, I'm going to figure this out. Like I'm, I'm ready to, to get serious about this. And so I really kind of started to apply myself at that point. Once I had, um, sort of the, the violin fiddle performance degree out of the way, (laughs) I started to do a little bit more self-directed, uh, vocal study and found Mm -hmm. an awesome teacher. Um, when I was living in, in Brooklyn, there was a phenomenal teacher I worked with in Manhattan called Jeannie Levitry. And, um, and she really helped me and it was, um, gratifying and enjoyable. And then I also was able to take a lot of that, um, experience and use it in my teaching when I teach music, um, Mm. because it's such a relatable phenomenon where are you teaching fiddle or, or singing? I teach both. And I also teach composition and, um, you know, musicianship, all kinds of ensembles, like all kinds of different, um, things. And, that idea of working on something that you don't really feel very good at is such a relatable mm. human thing. And it, it just comes yeah. up all the time that, so I'm actually really glad that I had that experience because it's really helped me going right. forward. It's where all the, the wisdom is, Lisa. it's in the hard stuff. It's almost like, <laughs> yeah. also, it's like, almost like you can have it all. You just need to work really, you just need to work hard enough. That's well, a joke. Yeah. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay. So you are six years old. You started playing violin. Uh, you also started playing in musical competitions around yeah. that age. What were those like? And how do you think participating in competitions impacted your relationship to performing? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. I, so I should specify. I did fiddle contests a lot in the state of Maine. And uh, I'm trying to think, maybe we did like a couple in New Hampshire, but that's a really specific cultural experience. And it's a little bit different from a generic competition in another genre. It's Mm -hmm. really different from a a classical concerto competition, for example, (laughs) Um, and even different uh, and, and, and far less pressure. It's like much more community oriented and less, just less competitive than in say a Texas fiddle competition or a bluegrass, bluegrass contest. Um, and so it was the contests for my family were really an extension of the concerts and the fiddle lessons and the dances that we were already going to. And a lot of times you'd show up at these events, they'd be annual, there'd be a different, um, fiddle contest at, at, you know, each town, you know, agricultural fair or festival throughout the summer and the fall. And you'd show up, um, at the same places, you know, every year or, you know, every weekend, and you would get to know all the people that were also going around to the different contests. And we made so many great friends through that experience. I met one of my first bandmates, Ed Howe and his family, and we became really good family friends with them. And we just kept seeing each other at contests and then jamming backstage and trading tunes Mm. with, you know, learning tunes from each other. 
Um, and gosh, there's just a bunch of people that I met through the contest circuit that I have in like the main music scene. I have great memories of, um, really appreciating people's playing from the stage and then getting to also watch them interact with each other and be part of a community backstage. And I, so I, I'm a, I'm super into music and community and the contest scene was really great for that especially when I was a kid. And I don't know if it's similar or different at this point. I know there's far fewer fiddle contests now mm. in Maine anyway. Why do you think that is? Um, I think uh, for a lot of folks, con- competition can be a negative thing. It can feel like too much pressure and not community oriented mm. and um, more cutthroat. Mm, um, okay. You know, so like I remember being a kid and often we would enter a contest where there wasn't even a kid's division. And so there wasn't there was no question about like whether we were going to win. It was like, oh, we're just mm-hmm. doing this to to try to do our best and we're going to get a chance to be on stage in front of a microphone and see what that feels like. And right. as it turns out, I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I love being on stage. I love a microphone. It was like. I really missed having a microphone during the pandemic because like my family didn't like, (laughs) they didn't make time for me to talk enough. (laughs) (laughs) I I missed all those monologues I get to do on stage. (laughs) Um, You attended, this is a little bit of a journey, this question. You attended uh, Valley of the Moon Fiddle Camp in California, which is a super important music camp for people like Laura Cortese, Brittany Haas, Mariel Vandersteel, and yourself, run by Alistair Frazier in Northern California. Um, there you met Hanukkah Castle and Laura Cortese, and eventually you all ended up in Boston for college. You went to the New England, uh, New England Conservatory of Music. They went to Berkeley. You all started playing out as the trio Halele. This is really like... <laughs> A condensed version of your history, which if people are not familiar with Haleli, um, it inspired so many young musicians. And I feel like the three of you and Matt Smith has talked about this before, Matt Smith of Passim, that the three of you started this like intense and exciting fiddle scene and culture in Boston that continues to this day. So how do you recall that experience of fiddle in Boston before and maybe after you arrived? Yeah, I, so the music scene, the folk music scene, the fiddle music scene in Boston is awesome. It's one of my favorite, it's it's the best city that I, one of the best cities that I know of for folk and traditional music. And it's so exciting. I don't necessarily feel that we started anything in particular, but we were so exuberantly just like, we were just so jazzed to be part of it. <laughs> and that was a real specific reason why I chose the New England Conservatory. I specifically wanted to go to a urban environment with lots of music opportunities, both in and out of school. Um, I mean, partly it was financial because I don't, I didn't have a lot of money to, um, to go to school and I needed to work through college. And so I wanted to work. I'm like, well, I'm going to school for music. I want to work as a musician. Boston Mm -hmm. has a lot of great opportunities for 
um, for getting gigs and, um, which was turned out it was true. <laughs> so through college and then afterwards, I was playing for contra dances on a regular basis. I was playing for sessions. I was playing weddings. I was playing concert. I was like, literally you just call me up and I would play the gig and, um, <laughs> and plus, you know, plus performances at, in the conservatory setting as well. And that is sort of the, the environment that, Haleli was was born out of. Um, we just had a bunch of, you know, it's like the first few years of college felt like ongoing extended fiddle camp. You know, we'd all, <laughs> all of us had had this experience and, and more than just like Hanukkah and Laura, there were um, a bunch of um, folks in Boston at the same time who had all previous met, previously met at different festivals and camps. Like April Virch was there, Casey Dreesen was there, Rashad Eggleston was there. Um, there were just, uh, uh, Carrie Rodriguez was there. And we all had met in these different combinations in different places throughout high school. And we were just mm. so excited, first of all, to be um, out of high school, <laughs> to be <laughs> living on our own in a city with our fiddles and our friends, it just felt um, amazing. It was so great. And it really motivated and inspired me musically. And I think that was shared around the group. Like we just would have a great time going to see concerts together or going to jam sessions, eventually collaborating and playing music together in like performance settings. So mm -hmm. it was a great scene. And I am really excited to hear that that is continuing and that, um, there's like a whole, you know, several new crops of young people in Boston that are just um, invigorating the scene. And I, I just, mm -hmm. I love that. It's how, it's how new music is born. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And that, that time in the late nineties, early two thousands was such like an explosive time in general for musicians in Boston. It was, you know, it's like making my heart flutter to think about it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and it was built around friendships and um, and camaraderie and supporting each other, which um, was really valuable and important to me. Way back in 2013, you were talking to Celtic Life about being self-employed and the temptation to be working constantly um, in that struggle to like do what you love for a living. You know, you're a musician, you're a professional musician, you just want to work all the time. Um, so that was way back in 2013. A lot of things have changed for you since then. You're living in <laughs> Vermont, uh, you adopted a child, the world went through a pandemic. Where are you with this balance now? Mm. Balance is sort of a weird word. I'm not sure if there is such a thing, but um, I am continuing to work on it. I have purposefully, I mean, I have made some hard choices over time with regards to how much I work and, and how much I'm able to be available for my family. Um, so yeah, like over the years, for example, um, when I was previously touring in my band, Low Lily, we were really dedicated to, we were, we were all parents and we were really dedicated to, um, just, just touring on the weekends and just going out for like maybe three, four days at the most and coming back and being with our families. And that is 
pretty unusual in the music scene. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a major reason that I'm, you know, still an independently, you know, I'm recording and putting out my own albums because in the larger music business world, that is just not an option, regardless of your family or your personal life or your, you know, whatever you're dealing with, whatever, whatever stage you are in life, the music business needs you to be out on the road all the time. And I definitely did that in my twenties. I was gone over 300 days a year for, wow. it was like, and I love to travel. I love to perform. I love music at the time. It was the right thing for me. And as it's, as it's, as my life has shifted and changed, I've, I've made some tough choices. And sometimes that mm-hmm. means I have major FOMO, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, absolutely. There's all these, all these times, like I'll, I'll see, you know, friends are going to such and such festival or they're doing such and such a tour. And, um, you know, there are days when I'm like just doing the dishes or, or dealing with a cranky kid. And I'm like, Oh, I want to be at that festival right now. (laughs) (laughs) But ultimately, I mean, it's nothing is forever. And I think it's been absolutely the right choice for me. And now even since, um, leaving low Lily this past summer, I'm even kind of cutting back even a little bit more. Um, just to kind oh, you're of take, a free agent. I'm a free agent. That's right. Um, and, and that's on one hand, that's allowing me to, to, uh, oh, it's opening up some time for me to focus on some more solo projects, which is really exciting, some more writing and some more recording on my own, but it's also allowing me to really take care of my health and really focus on taking care of my son. And, um, those are important things. <laughs> mm. All right. You ready to talk about this latest album? Yeah. I have a million mm-hmm. questions. Okay. <laughs> Your latest is Thunder in My Arms. It's a unique album in general, and it's a unique album for you because you're singing songs that you wrote, and this is the first time you've done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and these songs are about adopting your son. You came across resources, workshops, and books but no music that was specifically about this experience. Can you talk about your choice to write and share these songs? Like, was it easy to decide to share what your family was going through? It's not easy, but it felt important. I guess, so the decision to write was different than than the decision to share. Um, The writing happened almost without me even thinking about it. It was a necessary part of me processing all the experiences that we were having. And that it, it was just like, I had to write songs. <laughs> I absolutely had to. And like I said, I've always written music. I've always written songs since I was a kid, but, um, I had a few, there was like the experience both of in my own family adopting my son and also learning about developmental trauma and, and learning how to be a better parent. There was that experience. Plus I also did a lot of advocacy for several years where I was working with the Vermont Foster and Adoptive Families Association. And we were, um, we were trying to advocate for better, um, protections, um, and, and better support at the state level for, um, foster and adoptive families. And that experience was, um, it allowed me to meet tons and tons of different families and also administrators and different people, social workers, people that were every different part of the foster adoptive puzzle. And so after meeting lots of different families, I just had stories swimming around my head, all these different experiences and people that I'd met and they 
they came out in songs. And once I realized I wrote a bunch of songs, um, and then halfway through the writing process, it took me, you know, several years to write. I wrote, you know, over 25 songs and then ended up kind of eventually culling them down to like my favorite, really the best solid 10 for the actual album. But, um, mm -hmm. as I was going through this process and writing, after a while, I was like, oh, this seems like it's a thing. <laughs> I'm going to get, mm. I'm going to get really serious about it. I'm going to start working on crafting, you know, really well-written songs. And at that point I started enlisting some help. Um, and I did a bunch of co-writing with a group of therapists in my town here. Um, and they, they're a group, it's a team of therapists that, um, I go to see with my son. Um, they're called the children and parents project in Brattleboro, Vermont. And they were super generous with their time and they were amazing collaborators. They told me, they gave me so many ideas. I would go mm -hmm. in and say, okay, what, what do you say every day to everyone? What do you say over and over again to every parent? Or what do you wish people knew about X, Y, Z? And, mm -hmm. um, and they gave me s sort of song ideas. Um, and then I could bring a song in and, or bring a group of songs in and say, does this feel real? Does this feel accurate? Like, what do you think this song is about? How does this, does this make sense to you? Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, that kind of helped me really focus in and, and just craft a better album that felt both more that more authentic to me, but also more authentic to the overall cultural experience of foster care and adoption. Were there moments when you were surprised by CAP? Is it CAPP or just CAP? They call, they say CAP, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, which is the Children and Parents Project. Were there moments when you were surprised by their feedback or like moments where you completely disagreed with them? Mm. How open to this like experience did you find yourself? I mean, not in a big way. No, um, I felt fairly open. So there were things that there were things that were a little bit surprising. Like um, there's a song um, on the album. It's the last track. It's called When My Baby Cries. And that was from a conversation I had with my son's therapist where I said, what do you say to everybody over and over again? What do you want everybody to know? And, um, and he said, well, you know, that situation, sometimes you're out in public and you hear a kid crying, like in the grocery store, the laundromat or something. And the kid c continues to cry and cry and cry. And you just want to go to the parent and say, pick your kid up, <laughs> pick them up. They need you right now. And, um, and that's where that song idea came from. Uh, when my baby cries, um, the first word, the first lyrics of the song are when my baby cries, um, you know, I, I want to hold him. And that was a surprise to me because it seemed so basic. It was an, seemed mm -hmm. obvious to me, it seemed like mm -hmm. second nature or like something so obvious. You don't really need to talk about it. Like how, you know, like, did you tie your shoes today? Obviously I tied my shoes today. <laughs> did you pick your baby up when he cried? Obviously I picked my baby up when he cried, but I, that was surprising to me like that, that might not be obvious or that it would be need, it would need to be stated. And thank goodness that that was a conversation we had. Cause as it turns out, that was something my son needed to hear, which totally floored me. I, I was stuck on writing subsequent verses and we were riding in the car and I was, um, talking to my son about this song and, um, he 
turns out he really um, connected with it. And there was a part of him, there was like, you know, they say we all have this inner child. We all have this inner baby or whatever. His inner infant, his younger self needed to hear that we were going to take care of him. We were going to be responsive to him, whatever he was feeling, if he was happy or sad, we were going to notice and we were going to respond and reciprocate, you know? Um, so something so obvious to me was clearly not obvious and much needed to other people, which was kind of, kind of a cool learning experience for me. <laughs> it sounds like you had have always known that you've wanted to adopt uh and people there are people in your family who have adopted can you speak more about the decision to adopt like what specifically about it was appealing to you do you feel like you were prepared for the reality of what came <laughs> no <laughs> i mean is it i don't know I doubt, I don't think I've ever met a parent that, that will say that they were completely prepared no matter how they become a parent. Um, I was most definitely not prepared. And here we are as a, as a species, we do keep doing it. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I really did always know that I wanted to adopt. And I think there's a lot of different factors. Um, for me personally, I just don't have an, I don't have that biological clock that other people obsess, you know, that other people talk about or uh, assume everyone has. I just had, not only did I have no desire to actually conceive or be pregnant, I had a very strong, clear desire to never be pregnant. I just felt like <laughs> the whole idea of it was, was just bad. It felt terrible to me every time I imagine mm -hmm. it. And, um, it's so parasitic <laughs> and like hmm. parenting is like, that's a natural aspect of it. But, um, I have, uh, I've had like a lifelong, um, health condition, uh, uh, called endometriosis and it is extremely painful and disruptive and has been disruptive in different ways over my life as I've gotten older. And I think that maybe had something to do with it. Like I've spent so much time in pain that the mm. idea of going into labor was silly. <laughs> like, why would I do that to myself on purpose? Um, mm -hmm. and I know that it's different for everybody and that can be a really beautiful, amazing, magical thing for so, so, so many people. But for me, it was just not something I was willing to do. And then um, I'm also an environmental activist and I'm concerned about overpopulation. And I'm also aware that there are a lot of um, families and kids that need support in our communities. And um, that is, uh, all of those things are reasons that I decided to adopt and specifically to adopt through foster care. Um, you said when I first became a foster parent, I felt like I was in a war zone. My child was explosive, aggressive, and rightfully furious about what had happened to him without an appropriate way to communicate. Um, I read a little bit more about that, that his sense of shame was e easily triggered with praise, critique, or even like a shift in vocal tone. But mm. what was really cool is that you could sing to him... <laughs> And he responded to he responded to that. What was different about singing? Why did that work? 
I don't know. I mean, part of it is that um, my son is na a naturally gifted musician. Just coincidentally, he who knows if he'll ever uh, do anything with that. But he, before we met him, he was already using music as a self-soothing technique and was... Um, he showed up knowing many songs and being very excited. Like he was almost three when we met him and he had all these songs. He had a whole repertoire <laughs> that he would want to sing with us. And some of them were like, you know, he, was, he, he knew Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. He knew, he knew the ABCs and that he would also sing. He loved to sing like, um, that hit song from the nineties, I'm too sexy. And he knew, he knew a couple right of, said Fred. <laughs> yes. He knew a couple of Lady Gaga songs and he, you know, he knew some things from the radio. And so, um, singing was really just a natural way to communicate for all of us because I'm also music, you know, I'm, I also relate to people best through music. Um, mm. and it was also just desperation. Like there are times when you're just, you're dealing with like an ongoing feels like never ending meltdown temper tantrum situation. And you just need to, um, move on so you can go to sleep for the night. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, like any desperate person, you start grasping at straws, trying different ideas. And, um, I don't even remember how we figured it out. Like we, you know, at some point we were just like, you know, brush, brush your teeth, teeth, brush, brush your teeth, teeth, or whatever. Like you just make something up in the moment of whatever <laughs> has to happen. And it helps. It has helped for us in particular. It's so um, cool. Yeah. You've spoken about how important community is when it comes to being a musician, that music creates community. How did your experience in being part of a community help you navigate initial challenges in being a foster parent? It was absolutely um, necessary. We could not have done it without a community of support. I mean, like, and I say this, like, I'm, I'm, we have, we are so privileged. We're so lucky that we have a supportive community. And um, it is so important if anyone is thinking of um, becoming parents or foster or adoptive parents, like any, any way that you're choosing to grow your family, having that community support is so instrumental. Um, so we met folks through, initially through our foster, parent training and then we eventually we have um we reached out to um um we're part of an adoption support group in our area we also have um incredibly supportive family members um all of our parents are really involved and that was a necessity because especially when our son was little i was touring more and we just needed folks we needed help <laughs> Mm, my mm -hmm. my dad came on a couple of different tours or he would come to like if I was working teaching at a camp for the week um, my dad might come and take care of our son while I was teaching and then um I my dad is so generous like I would like pay him I say that with air quotes I would pay him by <laughs> letting letting him go to a free fiddle class when I you know at between times that he was like taking care of my kid <laughs> and um <laughs> Yeah. And my mother-in-law was super helpful. She came on several tours with us. And, um, so that, I mean, that support was absolutely necessary. And the thing is that, um, 
parenting is hard. Parenting is exhausting. And for us specifically, um, like there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of behavioral challenges, um, really just being close to anyone who is a trauma survivor and is healing from trauma is a challenge. And, um, and sometimes, um, the process of healing from trauma is not pretty. It's really, really, really challenging. And so, um, we were emotionally and physically exhausted for a long time and that Mm. those phases still come back sometimes. So I've heard or I've read that um, if a human, whenever a human experiences something traumatic, they will then process it at each developmental phase going into the future in their lives. So, and that has really been the case with our son. So he's processed his early childhood experiences kind of in a new and different way as he's gotten older. And, Mm. And that is good and healthy and important for healing but also sometimes it is challenging because you're like oh we're doing this again (laughs) shoot i thought we were done with that behavior wow A couple of questions about some of these songs. The song Since the Day We Met addressed hardships that you felt, so kind of like you're venting yeah. in the song. You did, you did a track-by-track track video, and I stole these ideas for questions <laughs> from that video. Um, but the main idea of Since the Day We Met is that you love your kid no matter what they do. You said you actually like couldn't sing this song for a long time without crying because it was like so personal. Mm-hmm. How did attempting to sing this song and, you know, keep going and trying to sing this song help you get in touch with that deep feeling that you had in being your son's mom? Mm. Gosh, I mean, there are times when you have a feeling or a, a, an inner knowing, a knowledge in your body. And um, then when you start to express it, it makes it more real. Uh, it makes it real both to yourself or to the people you're 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 expressing it to, and I think that was the case for this song. Um, I already felt. I mean, I obviously I felt all these things that I was writing about. That's why I was writing them. But then, bringing the song to life and um, singing it out loud for the first time and hearing my voice actually say those things, um, it just it it hit home in a new, heavier way, Mm. um, or in a different way. I mean, it's like the difference between like thinking about how much you love someone and then literally calling them on the phone and saying it out loud, (laughs) you know, it has, it has a weight. And so Mm. that weight, I, I felt that really heavily. Um, and then eventually, you know, being a performer, I had to figure out how to sing the song <laughs> without falling apart. Um, it just took some practice. <laughs> yeah. Wow. The song, They Sent Me a Picture. I heard you talking about this in your track by track and wondering if you can explain a little bit more, like who is sending who a picture in this track? Yeah. The song is imagining what it would be like to be a parent who is um, 
given their child up for adoption and what that feel what that might potentially feel like um, when you receive a some small token of um, connection like a photograph and um, it was inspired by me putting together photo albums um, for my son's birth parents um, and we do we do that um, a couple times a year and I just love looking at all the photos I enjoy kind of looking through the last bunch of months and thinking about the fun things we've done as a family mm-hmm. and I feel a lot of pride thinking about all the cool stuff my kid is doing and how awesome he is and put I put these books together with so much love and 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 pride and I, there was just one day when I was in this process of doing this project and then I imagined like what it would be like to get it on the other end like just you know you just get the photo you don't get the kid you don't have the experiences mm-hmm. you don't have the relationship you don't have the memories even you just have this photo and it doesn't react to you (laughs) Mm. right it's you know it's a really 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 um heavy thing when you start to think about that and and it became for me it's like a the song it, it it allows the song to talk about um the idea of loss within the scene of this um this idea of a, of mm-hmm. a parent receiving a photograph and what that might feel like. Your husband, Corey DeMario, is a well-regarded musician uh, known for many things, including being the upright bassist for Crooked Still. Um, how has writing this album and playing these songs with Corey helped your communication through your parenthood? It's interesting. Um, I think a lot of the communication sort of has been ha- has happened or has been happening even sort of as a preface to the songs <laughs> right cuz we're like trying to go to we were trying to go to conferences and trying to learn more about developmental trauma trying to learn more about attachment going to therapy sessions etc and um and this was a way the songs were kind of a way to sum up it's sort of my own book report <laughs> so to speak um <laughs> all the things that we talk about literally every day and continue to talk about and and all the things that I wanted like my community to know um in terms of with you know music with Corey I feel like music was always a really um a direct and awesome form of communication for us and that's the case with me for a lot of people where I um may surprise you I'm not I don't always feel super verbal (laughs) um (laughs) I really understand things on a deeper level when they're musical. And so um, that is the case with a lot of relationships that I have with dear, dear musician friends. You have a brand new album coming out in 2023. It's original fiddle tunes and a couple of traditional songs. You put this all together during the pandemic. How did your relationship to music change during lockdown? What is different about these songs? Mm, Yeah, well, I realized once again, I don't know, I guess I seem to keep needing to learn this lesson over and over again, but I realized once again how important and crucial music is in my life and how Mm -hmm. much I need it. Like I I just, I cannot live without it. Uh, That sounds so dramatic, but um, 
It's really true. I just, I cannot imagine or have life without music. And so, you know, we were all having this really isolated experience together at the same time without really being able to be together. And it was really challenging at home with my son with virtual schooling. Virtual school is not for everyone. <laughs> it is really not a good way to um, learn, especially for someone who might have learning uh, challenges <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or attention challenges. So we were really struggling, I'd say. And, and also we're all, myself included, but my whole family, we're pretty social people. So like that was a huge blow that we couldn't be socializing in the way that we were used to. And, you know, we couldn't go to our support group. We couldn't go to therapy. We couldn't go to all these different things. And so music was all I had left for a bunch of months. Um, it was like, okay, thank goodness. We're so lucky. We have a a place to live and I have my fiddle and, and wow, (laughs) that's what I'm going (laughs) to dig into. (laughs) I'm just going to dig into that. And and, like my life depends on it because it did. And, um, so I wrote a lot, um, not right, right at first. Like there was a, a, as gradually as like virtual school kind of got set up. And then, um, in Vermont, we were closer, we were a little bit sooner than other States to go back to part-time in person for public schools. So once that started happening and, um, once we figured out like, Oh, we can meet our support group outside or we can, you know, once things like that sort of started to workarounds started happening, um, all of a sudden I was just writing every single day. And I wrote not just tunes, like I have several albums now basically completely (laughs) written. And so I've got a full album of songs that's in the works. I've got a full album of tunes that you just mentioned. That's going to be coming up the first, it's going to be coming up next. And, um, it was just a lifeline for me. (laughs) So let's just clarify. Um, when you say songs, it's like, singing and tunes is instrumental. Yes. Thank you. That is such an important clarification. I feel <laughs> like I should make like an Instagram reel or something, but, um, there, <laughs> yes, songs have words, tunes. Is, that's the term in the fiddle world for an instrumental piece. Mm. And, um, yes. And I don't really, and because I'm part of the fiddle culture, fiddle world, that's my, my background. I, have never re- written very long extended compositions. I write really tunes. They're like little mm. little ditties, little melodies with two parts and they repeat a bunch of times and they're very satisfying to play over and over again. Yeah, like candy. Yes, only healthier. Maybe like roasted Brussels sprouts or with a little balsamic drizzle. I don't know. <laughs> I like it. Your band is all women on this new album. Um, yeah. Katie McNally, Rachel O'Coin, Molly Obamswin, Karen Tweed, and Natalie Haas. You have not recorded with them quite yet uh, at this at the time of this interview, but I imagine the energy is going to be amazing. Um, <laughs> or, so we were talking before we started recording. I got married in June, and there were tons of women on the dance floor, and I was just like in like just having a great time and I'm like I love this feminine energy like it wasn't all women on the dance floor but it was like mostly women so I don't know I just like I'm hoping for that energy for you but what do you like about that type of energy and playing with all women well I'm trying to remember if I've done it before 
Um, I don't think I have. I think this is maybe the first time. First, um, I've. I mean, well, that's no, that's not true. Actually, I did tour as a duo for many years with my friend Bethany Wakeman, and that was awesome. And um, I guess, in some ways, hmm, I'm trying to figure out like how much I want to like dive into like cultural assumptions <laughs> and philosophical discussions. Um, I think it depends on the person. Like it really does. Like getting the right combination of people is essential to any recording session or tour. Um, and because, um, first of all, music is so intimate. It's such an intimate thing to be creative and vulnerable and like open yourself up to be like, wow, I have this, like this idea that, that came from my heart. What do you think of it (laughs) To, to do that with a group of musicians is really intimate. And then on top of that, if you are going to go out and tour that material, that music, um, you're going to spend all your time together. Like you better like that group of people, um, Mm -hmm. a lot. (laughs) Um, it's, I always joke, it's like, you know, whoever you're touring with, it's basically like being married to them and, and you, so you choose wisely, but I am going out. uh, This is a big experiment for me. I picked this group of musicians because I've um, gotten to play with them either individually or in smaller groups in the past and just been a huge admirer of their work for a long time and loved their projects that they've done um, that I've gotten to hear. And now I'm going to find out what we sound like all together. Like literally, we're going into the studio in December and we're going to we're going to be like, oh, that's what we sound like. (laughs) (laughs) I have a good feeling about it. I'm like super, super excited because like I said, I've played with all of them in different combinations and I just love all of their playing so much. I think it's going to be really, really fun. Plus, um, not just because of the pandemic, but because of my parenting life for many years, I've been doing remote recording work. I have a small, modest recording studio here at my house, and I have done a lot of overdubbing for my last few projects. And so this is kind of the first project I've done in a long time where we're all going to, we're, we're good. There's going to be some in-person live in mm-hmm. the studio work. And so that's also really exciting to me right now. Um, it's something I'm just craving in, in my life, you know, more live in-person music. Well, you think of me when you all of a sudden yell, I love this feminine energy. (laughs) It's true. So, and there is, and, and there is absolutely a point to that. And I noticed it, um, maybe for the first time when I was working with Child's Play, Child's Play is not a all female band, but it is a very, very large fiddle orchestra that um, toured for many years that I was part of. And there's other instruments and dancers part of the mix as well. Um, And although it's not completely um, female, it is, there are a lot of of women fiddlers in that band. And in that band, before each recording session or tour, different people would come forward and take turns leading an arrangement or leading the group through a a section of the rehearsal. And I just um, really appreciated certain folks in the way that they stepped up, the way that they were great at leading and teaching with a certain kind of um, authenticity and also compassion. And 
clarity. I just, I loved it. And that's actually how we, I ended up asking Katie McNally to produce the al- my next album, is that she was also in Child's Play. I just loved her. I love her work as a soloist. I love her work with other people. And I loved watching her rehearse the band in Child's Play. I was just like, wow, she knows yeah. exactly what she's talking about. She's really kind about it, but she's super clear. It's, there's no ambiguity. It's like, mm-hmm. ah, great. We know what to do and we are excited to do it. <laughs> yeah. When is this record coming out? Do you know around? I'm really when? hoping for March 2023. Right. That's, you know, that, that everything's going to have to really coordinate perfectly to get that to happen. So I'm sure it will. Sounds <laughs> Thank <easy>. you. <laughs> Um, yeah, no problem. <laughs> before we go, will you do the lightning round? Oh, sure. Oh, boy, I'm nervous. I, I, oh, yes, I will. Okay, here we go. What color is your soul? Purple. What is your least favorite household chore? Cleaning the bathroom. Who is your celebrity crush? Harry Styles. Oh, gosh, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> so embarrassing. You heard it here first. <sighs> What is your most useful non-musical skill? Organizing things. Mm. Sadly, I wish I, I sometimes I wish I didn't have that because it's hard work anyway. <laughs> Which is the worst substance to spill in your house? Glitter, maple syrup, sand or powdered sugar? All to, all of them together. Ah, yeah. boy. Hard to say. Maybe maple syrup because we value it so highly. Oh yeah, Vermont. Like yeah. we would, I would, I would lick it off the floor. I, I'm not, <laughs> not even. I mean, <laughs> we clean our floor, and I love maple syrup. So. <laughs> right. It makes sense. Uh, what is the best gas station delicacy? Oh boy, um, you're uh, at risk of having people argue with me on the internet. I'm gonna say Doritos because. The idea of a delicacy in a gas station, it's all about knowing what to order. Yeah. It's all about knowing your venue, knowing your where you are and, and who you're with and what's happening mm-hmm. and then ordering accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is the last question. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Oh, oh this is hard in a lightning format. Maybe Acadia, but also like everywhere. Yeah. Right? There are so many, so, so, so many beautiful places, and I've been to so many of them. Just like mm. every, there's every, yeah. Mm. Acadia is the thing that popped out of your mouth, and we'll go with that. Yeah, it's special. That's a good answer. It's special. special. And it's close to my heart because it's in Maine, and you know. Yeah. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. It's been so great to talk to you. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored and grateful, and I I love your podcast, so thanks for having me be part of it. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can go to basicfolk.com, search on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk, or you can find us wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.